here's trying something new. Hey, daily whatnot, the podcasters. Pastor Wolf Miller here. This is yesterday's audio from the Worldwide Bible Class. We're studying the life of Jacob with Martin Luther. Uh, it's an online weekly Bible class. We meet on Thursday mornings. I've never put the audio up here, so I'm trying this. Let me know how it sounds, how it goes. Uh, there's some visuals because I'm reading the text and sketching and stuff like that, so it might not translate to audio, but this is an experiment week. So let me know what you think. Wolfmuther.co slash contact for all the feedback. God's peace with, be with you. Here it is, uh, Martin Luther on Genesis chapter 27, verses 35 to 36. on this computer the life of uh the life of jacob with martin luther in fact we're now in oh this is such a great spot that we're in in the text because uh because jacob has just received the blessing from isaac his dad and then uh remember esau comes in and says what about the blessing for me and oh and isaac is like oh boy i gave it to your to your brother and so then the drama unfolds. So we're right in there. And we were talking about the repentance of, of, uh, of Esau. And if it was really repentance, Luther pointed us to the text in Hebrews 12, where it says he did not find blessing of a place for repentance, um, because, even though he sought it with tears. And we were talking about true and false repentance. Uh, so let's pull up the text and we'll take a look. We're in, um, oops, I didn't share it, did I? We are in uh, uh, Genesis 27. Oops, I got Hebrews up still. We're in Genesis 27, verse 34, 35. And we are um, in Martin. Let me back up here. I'm studying Jacob Luther. So here, so here we are. So, um, uh, so let me let some more people in. Uh, so we had this business of what is true repentance versus false repentance? And remember, we ended here, true repentance, the only thing it's concerned about is God's, uh, is God's grace. The only concern of true repentance is the mercy and kindness of God, not of, you know, whatever else comes, whatever else I have to suffer, no matter, I just want the grace of God. I care nothing about recovering what I've lost if I've acted foolishly. I shall surely pay the price or penalty for my folly, provided that God is gracious to me. This, to use a word that I learned from Melville, there's a monomaniacal uh, mind and heart that, 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 that true repentance is concerned simply with the grace of God. But that's not how Esau felt. Esau says, if I had my birthright, I wouldn't care about whether God is gracious or not. That's the, that's the problem with Esau. See it? See the, see the difference between, um, a bit, between true repentance and false repentance? So, uh, uh, according, oh yeah, so the Hebrews 12 passage. I, and I think we talked about this last week, but this is a good ramp, on-ramp to where we need to be. This is how one should understand that statement in Hebrews 12, which says that he, Esau, found no opportunity or chance to repent, for there was no true repentance. But he grieved over the harm he had suffered and over his folly through which he lost the birthright and his glory. 
Therefore, he rushed horribly into hatred for his brother and for God, who blessed Jacob through his father Isaac. So now this is amazing that true repentance, which cares, again, monomaniacally for the grace of God, loves God and loves the neighbor. But false repentance breeds hatred for the brother and for God. This is something just for us to, I mean, this is a, one of the reasons why it's so nice and helpful to read Luther, because he has this, these insights, not only into the scriptures, but into the human condition. If, if I'm truly contrite, if I'm truly sorry for my sin, if I'm truly repentant, then, then what I desire is for God to love me and for me to love my brother. But if I'm just upset because I'm caught or because I've lost something, or because something bad has happened to me, then it's an entirely different thing. Now, um, it breeds this hatred that's there. So true repentance breeds contrition, faith, love, and false repentance, sorrow, bitterness, hatred. That's a good thing to chart out. Let me see if I can draw a picture. So remember, true repentance. I haven't done a white uh, blackboard in a while. Let's do a little blackboard picture. So true repentance, remember, has, has two parts and a fruit. So uh, uh, Zoom, at some point, updated their stuff, and it makes it harder to write. So here, so here's the two kinds kinds of repentance. So let's say let's look at look at true repentance. Come on, come on, draw that thing. Uh, and it has two parts. Remember, number one, uh, contrition. Come on, what? It, I, I keep. Whoo, Calm down. What's wrong with you, Zoom? There's contrition and then there's faith. Oh, come on. All right. Forget it. I'm typing it out. Faith. I can't even type. And then there's the third part of true of contrition, of the, the, the fruit of true contrition, and that's love for God and for the neighbor. So that so that um, so that this so that true contrition has uh, first it realizes its own sin, and then second it realizes that Christ is the Savior of sinners, and then third, the fruit of repentance is love for the neighbor and for God. So that so that so that I see the bad stuff in myself and I see the good stuff outside of myself. Now, there's a false repentance, and that is going to be not contrition, but sorrow. And that sorrow is over maybe what's been, that I've been caught, sorrow over what's been lost, anger. And the result is not faith, but bitterness. And that's especially in Hebrews, what it's talking about. And then the fruit of it is hate. So that... So that uh, the, the false repentance, it, it, there's a there's a sorrow over 
again, the, 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 the wrong that's happened to me, which leads to bitterness and hatred. Okay. So this is, uh, this is the way this shakes out. This is the way this kind of shows up. Okay. All right. Ooh, man, do I not like that? I cannot draw. I got to figure, I got to figure that there's got to be, if someone knows if there's a, if there's a, uh, a special control on zoom that makes it where I can draw better. That would be great. Okay. All right. So Hebrews 12, he found no chance to repent back here. This is an outstanding pattern. An example of one who repents falsely. What's going on with Esau. It should be noted in order that we may learn to distinguish true repentance from what is called false and feigned gallows repentance. A thief, a thief sees that punishment on the gallows is imminent for him, so he grieves and would gladly live longer. But if God gives him this grace and light that he truly acknowledges sin and God's wrath, he's no longer concerned about his life, provided that he gets help, lest his soul's salvation be in doubt. And then he should be instructed and buoyed up with the mercy and grace of God revealed in Christ, not with confession or papistic satisfaction. More on that in a little bit. The word papistic is probably a word that we should try to use more. But in, in other words, the gallows repentance is, is this. I see the gallows coming, and I'm afraid, and I'll do anything to avoid that. But true repentance sees the gallows and says, that's what I deserve, but God be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see? Matt says in the chat that the thief was only on the cross was only concerned with true repentance, even on the gallows. Right. That's right. Now, that doesn't mean that because someone is headed for the gallows, they don't have a true repentance or because someone's in prison that they don't have true repentance. Uh, by all means, by all, every account that I've heard that um, there's more Christians in prison and more people who are converting and becoming Christians in prison. And that there's a, there's a true repentance that's there because you're face to face with your own um, sin. And, and once you're on, you, you remember we're, we're all in the business of self-justification arguing. I think the main thing people are arguing nowadays is for the meaning of their own lives and, and or purpose or value or whatever. We're all trying to make that argument. And especially if you're arrested for a crime and you're there in court, you're making that argument. But then once it's done, you're on the other side of it then you can face up to your own sinfulness with an, an integrity that's difficult when you're still trying to defend your own innocence. I, a poor, miserable sinner. That's the, that's the language that we're taught in church to what we're to do with our sins is to confess them. Okay. Okay. Now to the text. So verse 37, Isaac answered Esau, behold, I have made him your Lord. So this goes back to what, um, to the blessing that Isaac gave to Esau. I have made him, Jacob, your Esau's Lord. And all his brothers I've given to him for servants. And with grain and wine, I have sustained him. That all had to do with the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob back a few verses earlier. And we'll remember, and this is an amazing thing, that the blessing that God gave to Jacob was, again, it was not just a spiritual thing, but it was a spiritual and it was a temporal thing. It involved all three estates. What then 
can I do for you, my son? Jacob's blessing includes the three hierarchies, the domestic, the royal, and the priestly. This is a, a reminder that, I don't know how to impress this on you. Uh, I'm trying to impress it on myself. There's a, there's a sort of a mental structure for Martin Luther and he reads the world in accordance with these three estates, with what he calls here the three hierarchies. Um, let me show you. Let me. I'm going to share something different here. Uh, new share. Here's a. Here's a blog post that I did a while back, and it's called "Thinking Like a Lutheran: The Three Estates." And this is just a quotation collection post. What? How do you get there? If you go to wolfmuller.co slash three estates, you can find it. And it's just a, a list of quotes from Luther where he talks about the three estates. This one that we're looking at now isn't on here because there, there's so many of them. It's all, it's all over the place. It's just the way that, that he thinks about the world, the way that he thinks about the, the scriptures. There's the family. And there's the church, and uh, and there's the state. Um, maybe this nope, that's even later. And and it's it just shows up all over the place. I mean, one after another after another. Uh, there's the, the maybe the key place is in Luther's um, discussion of his greater confession. Yeah, here. So so here, let's just I'd I'd maybe just like to look at this here. So this is great confession concerning the Lord's Supper. Remember that Luther wrote more about the Lord's Supper than anything else. Uh, Fifteen twenty-eight. I believe that this great confession has three parts, and we're here in the third part. And the third part of Luther's great confession concerning the Lord's Supper is not about the Lord's Supper. It's about everything. It's he basically gives like a uh, a sort of an overview of of theology, and he talks about first creation he talks about redemption he talks about the church the holy spirit and so forth it's it's two years before the augsburg confession 1530 and um and it's in some ways this third part of the great confession is is warming up for the augsburg confession and this interestingly enough where he talks about the three estates all right this is kind of as it's kind of nerding out on the luther stuff but you would expect, okay, maybe let me know. He's talking about the true holy orders, the true religious institutions established by God. Where would you expect to find that? I would expect to find it in the third article, which talks about the Holy Spirit and which talks about the Holy Catholic Church. That's where. So that's where I would. What, what, where, that's where I would expect. Uh, this topic to come up, but it doesn't. It comes up in the second article, which is about Jesus and salvation. Uh, and, 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 and why? Is because the, the orders, this is talking about the monks and the nuns uh, uh, that are there, and how they are trying to be righteous by their own works and prayers and fasting and sacrifice and all this sort of stuff. And Luther says, look, if Jesus dies for our sins, then this is idolatry. If Jesus is the Savior, 
then all of our attempts at self-salvation are idolatrous. They're an attempt to dethrone Jesus from his proper place. So he demolishes the monasteries and all those orders. And he says, but what's left? Chaos? Is this like the peasants revolt kind of stuff? No. Answer, no. There's holy orders that are, that are underneath. The holy orders and true religious institutions established by God are these three. The office of priest, the estate of marriage, the civil government. This is so, so that it just, all who are engaged in the clerical office and ministry of the word are in a holy, proper, good, God-pleasing order and estate, such as those who preach, administer the sacraments, supervise the common chest, sextons, messengers, servants who serve such persons. They're engaged in works which are all together and holy in God's sight. And again, all fathers and mothers who regulate their household wisely, bring up children to service of God, are engaged in pure holiness, in a holy work, in a holy order. Same with children and servants who show obedience to their elders. Moreover, princes and lords, judges, civil officers, state officials, notaries, male and female servants, all who serve such persons, and further, all their obedient subjects, citizens, are engaged in pure holiness. Look at that, pure holiness. This is the, uh, where, where do you have to go to be uh, holy? Where do you find holiness? It used to be that you had to go to the monastery. Because there's no, if you're preaching and going to church, that's holiness. If you're at home, being a father, mother, whatever God has called you to be, that's pure holiness. And if you're in the state, doing what God has called you to do in the state, that also is pure holiness. This is just, I would, I would commend this to you as a, as taking a look at these, uh, at these texts because it's so fantastic. So, so here. Back to the, the text there uh, from Genesis. L Jacob's blessings includes the three hierarchies, domestic, royal, priestly, home, home, state, church, hearth, throne, altar. Huh? So that, uh, so that uh, Isaac had blessed Jacob in all three of these. For the purpose of administering these three, he's also given him goods of the world. In the state, he has the rule and government among the people. In the church, he has the stewardship of the forgiveness of sins and of eternal life. Consequently, Jacob is bishop. That's in the church. He has the prophecy. He has the word, forgiveness of sins, and the worship of God. Next, he adds, I have made his brothers subject to him in the state, and he'll make people subject to himself. So here, this is probably family and state. This happened under David, who was the first to fulfill the blessing when he subjected the Syrians, the Philistines, the Arabians, the Edomites. What shall I do now, says Isaac? Because I've given all these gifts already to Jacob. What shall I give to you beyond these three blessings? He's taken everything. And this has undoubtedly happened in accordance with the special plan and will of God, whose blessing this was. Remember, all of the whole plot goes back to the promise that the Lord gave to Rebecca, which was that the older will serve the younger. So this is all this is all the outworking of that particular promise. Uh, Therefore I cannot change it, says Isaac, but Esau does not give up. Indeed, he urges his father with prayers and entreaties to bless him too. Esau said to his father, verse 38, look how fast we're moving. 
<laughs> Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. This is why it's stated in the epistle of the Hebrews, 12, 17, though he sought it with tears. For this is the anxious and fervent entreaty with tears with which he seeks often and anxiously, but too late and in vain. For once God is withdrawn and once the word and the grace of God have been taken away, it's not easily found again. Formerly, there was a very beautiful church at Rome. It had a large number of confessors and martyrs there than were anywhere else in the entire world. But what a horrible darkness and abominations followed when it was taken away. We went to see Rome this summer and, uh, you know, got to go to the Colosseum, which was the place of so many Christian deaths. It's kind of amazing to see and consider. But now it's, you know, all these huge, glorious basilicas with all these thrones and all this riches. And it's everything you would possibly want except for the forgiveness of sins. Now, even if they were pining away with crying and wailing or were really dying with Esau, yet they are achieving nothing toward recovering the former light and grace of God. Before these times in the papacy, we cried out for eternal salvation. So here's a little story, and um, this is good for us to get. This is Luther, mature Luther, thinking back on the old papacy days. Sometimes I'll, I'll be teaching, and I, and I think I'll kind of do this back in the old evangelical days. And you're remembering the, um, you're remember the, you're, you're remembering the way of things. As you were longing for salvation, if you were longing for um, God's kindness, you're longing for comfort. You just can't seem to grab a hold of it. That's how it was for Luther. Matt says, so I, Matt's pulling back, and maybe this is good that I didn't finish uh, the point. Matt says, uh, perhaps the blessing of the three estates are under the second article of the creed because all authority under heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, who then bestowed the gifts and blessings. I think that's right, Matt, but here, I, maybe even clearer than this, is that the second article of the creed, that Jesus is the Savior, means that I am not my own Savior. And that means that monasticism is idolatry. And, and then what happens is when monasticism is, uh, let me see, I, I'm going to try to draw a picture again. This, so let's just see. This is good for my patience. You know, in ASL, the word for patience and the word for, so patience and suffering. So this will be good for my patience. Okay. So if you're going to imagine it something like this, here is the medieval church. Okay. Here, here's the, there's, there's a church building. And they have the monastery there where all the monks live. And, you, and, and here's where that's the holy estate. And then you have the medieval castle. And here's where the king lives. And here's the soldiers and so forth where you fight. And then, then you have the medieval 
There's the drawbridge. Here's the moat. It has the crocodiles in it. Okay. And then you have the medieval uh, house. <laughs> Little hut. Okay. That's where the family lives. And the farm and everything else like this. And this is the Middle Ages. You have the... Uh, you have those who pray. Come on. And then you have those who fight. You guys would laugh if you saw me. And then you have those who work. And you were, every person was part of one or another or another. You were either here in the holy estate or here in the royal estate or here in the kind of despised estate. And this is the whole structure of the Middle Ages. Okay. Uh, now, what happens is, as, as this is destroyed by the preaching of the gospel, so, so the, the, it's recognized as idolatry. Like, the, look, this, this gets in the way of Jesus. Let me draw, let me exit out with something. This gets in the way of Jesus and that collapses. Well, then this whole thing is propped up over there. This kind of collapses, this kind of collapses. And what you realize is that there's uh, in the ruins of this whole thing, Luther, he, he, Luther can see, uh, can you imagine like if a, if there was all these things were built on ancient ruins and then Luther can see once they're, um, uh, to all fall down, he starts to see that there was underneath that there were not three buildings, but there was one big building with three rooms in it. <laughs> and there's the church, and there's the family, and and there's the state, and that we we live in all of them. It's not one or the other or the other. No, we all are part of the church and the family and the estate. We're, we're in, the, we're all in, they're not separated from one another. That, that every person has a responsibility and a role according to the family and probably multiple responsibilities and in the church and in the state. You're a ruler or you're a citizen, you're a mom or a dad or a, or a son or a, a daughter or a grandparent or a brother, you have all those vocations, and you're a preacher or you're a hearer, you're baptized, you're a communicant, um, etc. So that we so that we all are living in all three estates. They're not separate from one another. And so Luther sees the ruins of God's order, which was covered up by medieval society. So the cross wallops this false holiness. And the whole thing tumbles, and this becomes visible. That, I think, is what's going on. Good question. Okay. I think it's a pretty important thing for us to consider the three estates. I think we got to keep, keep pressing on that. Okay. So now here's back to Luther, who's telling his story of um, the old papacy days. Before these times in the papacy, we cried out for eternal salvation, for the kingdom of God, and we afflicted our bodies violently, yes, killed them. We did not do this with the sword or with weapons. We did it with fastings, by castigating the body. We sought, 
we knocked day and night. Matthew, remember, uh, pray, ask, seek, knock. If I myself had not been delivered by the comfort of Christ through the gospel, I would not have lived two years. So Luther's talking about how he was probably getting closer and closer to actually physically dying because of the austerity of the life that he was living in the monastery. Um, and this is true, in fact, probably just in the history books, his Luther's, Luther's death came probably earlier than it should have because of complications from his long fastings, and they would do this exposure. They would go and sit in the cold, and he would also uh, flagellate himself. They'd whip themselves in the back as punishment for their sins, sinful, try to drive away sinful thoughts and stuff. So, so in this way, I tortured myself, and I fled the wrath of God. Nor were tears, sobs, and sighs lacking like Esau. But we accomplished nothing. Why? Why, such, why were the tears and the sobs and the sighs not enough? It's not without a purpose that Paul's so careful to warn, do not accept the grace of God in vain. Behold, he says, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Therefore, let us make use of grace that has been offered. The reason why there was no deliverance is because there was no grace. It was, it was all about achieving our own purity of mind and desire and speech and act. And you can't get there. You cannot, you cannot kill the sinful flesh with a whip. You cannot starve the sinful flesh by fasting. You, you cannot destroy the sinful flesh by anything that you yourself do. You, you can't drown the flesh with your tears. Therefore, let us make use of the grace that's been offered while we may. Let us open our mouths and hearts and permit the blessing to be poured into us. It comes from the outside. The Germans use a proverbial um, expression, a proverbial imprecation, 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 impre this means to curse. A proverbial cursing that's not evil, may God afflict the lazy hands with boils. That is, may evil betide remiss and lazy hands. They are just to avail ourselves of opportunity at hand without delay. Thus, when the gospel is taught, let us hear and learn it with grateful hearts. As Christ says, John 12, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The light is with you for a little longer. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. Surely the example of the Jews proves adequately what horrible darkness laid hold of them when they no longer believed him who did such great signs before their eyes. They fulfill this figure of Esau uncommonly well. They cry out day and light, night. They've been castigated bodily with fast and prayers for 1,500 years. They pray fervently, Lord God, send the Messiah for thy name's sake, for thy word's sake, for thy kingdom's sake. Even the stones and rocks could be moved by these prayers and limitations, they find no, but they find no place for repentance. Not that there's no place for repentance, but they are going to heaven by a wrong road and want to acquire the blessing by their own merits. 
which is impossible. They do not acknowledge their sin, but justify themselves. This is the danger for all of us. And, and, and it's the danger before we know the gospel. It's the danger, especially after we know the gospel. And then we, we fall away through pride. You know, we normally think that the danger is that we're not good enough for God, but it turns out that the danger is we're too good for God. I mean, I better look at you guys while I say that, because that sounded funny. We, we think, and I hear this all the time, Pastor, I'm not, I'm a sinner. I've offended God and what I think and what I say and all this stuff. Surely God won't accept me. So we think I'm not, I'm not good enough for God. I'm not holy enough for God. I don't deserve to come into his house. I don't know how many times I've, people have said, I'm not, I'm not worthy to come to church. It'll collapse. That is not the danger. That's just what, in fact, Jesus wants. He wants us to know our own sinfulness, to know our own weakness, to know our own faults. That's what he wants. The danger is that we're too good for God, or at least that we think we are, that we think, well, I don't need repentance. I don't need the death of Jesus. I don't need the blood of Jesus. I don't need the kindness of God. I don't need the grace of God. I can do it on my own. Like what Jesus says, it's not the, it's not the well who need a physician. It's the sick. Now, everybody's sick. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The question is, do you know it? Do you know your own? Do you know your own sickness? Or are you trying to defend your own health? And that's the danger of self-justification. That's what he's getting after here. They don't acknowledge their sin, but they justify themselves. We uh, this came up just recently with with the uh, the parable. Oh yeah, uh, the parable of the prodigal. No, the parable of the good Samaritan, where he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the scriptures. What do they say? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And then, and then it says, he, wanting to justify himself, I think it's amazing. Luke gives us why he asked the question. Wanting to justify himself, he says, who's my neighbor? In other words, if I just get the definitions right, I can do it. If I, especially if I, can, if I can define my neighbor as the person that I love and if I can define the person that I don't love as not my neighbor, I'll be golden. <laughs> but Jesus won't let him get away with it. This, I, we were talking about, at least maybe I was talking about this in Sunday school or Wednesday afternoon or sometime on the, I can't remember where I say things. Uh, that, um, That, that humans are self-justifying creatures. Fallen humanity is in the constant trap of self-justification. And the way that that looks, especially nowadays, is that to justify our own meaning and purpose because everything in the world is fighting against the idea that I have meaning and purpose. I mean, evolution, just to take an example from 100 years ago, 
I cannot believe that we still have evolution. It, I would have thought, I would have thought that we would have come up with a better explanation on how things got here 50 years ago, but we're still holding on. The world is still holding on to this evolution myth. It's crazy. Anyway, it's, it is so, it's such a story of despair because it, it undercuts meaning. It undercuts the possibility of meaning and it, it demolishes purpose. I mean, what's my purpose is to reproduce, which I suppose uh, is uh, better than no purpose at all. And, and that there's actually some truth to that. But, uh, the, but the problem is that there's no meaning. At, so I got to go hunting for meaning while the whole world is, is telling me a story that obliterates even the possibility of me finding it. And I got to, and I got to, and I got to continue on in that. So that the, the world has given us all a pretty difficult nut to crack, a pretty difficult riddle to solve. The world has said to each one of us, hey, uh, you have to pursue meaning in life. And by the way, it's impossible to have meaning in life. Oh. I mean, no wonder we're tearing apart our bodies and, and everything else to try to, to try to find something there. Maybe it's there. So anyway, we're this business of self-justification and we're experts at it. And, it, and and that's why the gospel comes and says, your sins are forgiven. And, and that your meaning comes in the form of the kindness of God. Why were we talking about that? Justify themselves. Uh, they say, we are Israel. Esau says, I'm your firstborn. Oh, God, they say. We are Israel. Oh, God, the heathen have taken away the birthright and the blessing. That's the heathen. That's the Gentile. They feel God's wrath. They do not want to acknowledge their sin. They, uh, but to feel sin and the wrath of God because of sin is a very great grace. And salvation is close to such sinners. As a result, they, that is the sinners who feel uh, God's wrath are they're easily brought to repentance but to defend and excuse sin is to pass judgment on God that is to condemn his words which Psalm 51 verse 4 says therefore Esau is an example of the Jews Psalm 51 against you you only have a sin so that you may be justified and your words justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. But if I'm not a sinner, uh, if I'm not a sinner, then God is a liar. Now this, by the way, this discussion of the Jews uh, is, it's, it is interesting. This is about the same time that Luther wrote uh, against the Jews and their lies which is a wild, widely harangued a text because Luther does say some outlandish things in that particular text. I was wondering about that the other day, if it would be worthwhile to study, because while Luther does go way over the top toward his attitude towards the rabbis and the synagogues in Germany, it is not as over the top 
as he goes against the Pope and the monks. In other words, if Luther's upset with the Jewish people, his frustration is here. If he's upset with the Pope, it's, it's here. Uh, he's more measured against the, the Jews. So we have the trouble of looking back on that particular work through the, through the events of the Holocaust, the, this, this, this horrible, unimaginable evil of our own century. And so, so we read what Luther's writing there and we cringe a little bit. This question comes up a lot, by the way. Whenever I, I'm talking to people who are not Lutheran about being Lutheran, one of the first things they say is, wasn't Martin Luther a anti-Semite? I don't wonder if it would be wise to study on the Jews and their lies because it's actually, in a lot of places, quite wonderful. You're not supposed to say that, but it, it is. I mean, it's, I, you know, I, I've, I've read the thing and there's some place, again, there's places where he goes way too far, but look, so here's an example. He's, he's talking about the, the Jews here about how they, the, there's a place for them in repentance, but not in pride. And he says, we too, when we were monks had the same problem. We were accomplishing nothing with our castigations for we were unwilling to acknowledge our sin and ungodliness. Indeed, we had no knowledge of original sin. I, on this Jews and their lies thing, I was thinking about this. I think I saw Jordan. Jordan, are you there? I think I saw Jordan jump on. Jordan and his family live in Greece, and he told me when we went to visit that the only work of Luther that was translated into Greece was on the Jews and their lies, and that was to, and that was back from the World War II days to generate animosity towards the Nazis. That's an amazing thing to think about historically. Anyway, you guys, let me know if you're if you're interested in studying that. Um, more. That'd be, that, that might be an interesting thing to look at. Therefore, we too, when we were monks, were accomplishing nothing with our castigations, for we were unwilling to acknowledge our sin and ungodliness. Indeed, we had no knowledge of original sin, nor did we realize that unbelief is a sin. We even concluded and taught that one had to be uncertain about God's mercy. Therefore, the more I ran, the more I longed to come to Christ and the farther he withdrew from me. After confession and the celebration of Mass, I was never able to find rest in my heart, for the conscience cannot have sure comfort on the basis of works. Boy, oh boy. There's the, the conscience cannot have sure comfort on the basis of works. Therefore, let us enjoy the blessing we now have and the grace that is offered after the light of the gospel has reappeared. And let us not be indifferent or ungrateful, for once the blessing has been taken away, it's not in our power to recover it. It can be recovered only by reason of a free gift of God in such a way that he is influenced by no one's tears, cries, and exhortations. Uh, maybe maybe one more paragraph here. Uh, I, I'm, I think we're winding down, but let me... Yeah, yeah, this, this will get us through this verse here. So one more. Uh, I saw this well, namely, that the free gift is absolutely necessary for obtaining the light of the heavenly life. And I worked anxiously and diligently to understand the well-known statement in Romans 1. Uh, uh, here is Luther's, this is a great story. He tells it a number of times, how he got a hold of the gospel. And it, it's, it's not exactly clear when this happened. It's called the Tower Experience. Luther was living and teaching in Wittenberg. He was teaching Romans chapter 1, 
So his Romans lecture puts this around maybe 1515. But when he tells it and puts it in the context of the 95 Theses, it seems like it comes afterwards, 1518. Pastor Ketchelmeyer and I have a big debate. Oh, speaking of Pastor Ketchelmeyer, he's being installed in Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio on Sunday, August 28th at four, at 4 o'clock. So come on if you want. He asked if I could preach. So we're preaching on the beheading of John the Baptist. How about that for an installation passage? Pastor Ketchermeyer and I are dating because I always want to put this, this event of the tower story after the publication of the 95 Theses. He wants to put it earlier. And I think he's probably right, actually. I don't know. Here's the story. Uh, I worked anxiously and diligently to understand the well-known statement in Romans 117 the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In the gospel, I sought. What is this footnote going to tell us? Uh, this is in um, fifteen forty-five. Luther writes a preface to the edition of his Latin works, and he tells the story there too. That's what this is referring to. The righteousness of God, and the key word that's going to be difficult here is the word righteousness. So the righteousness of God is connected to the gospel. And what does this righteousness of God mean? I sought and knocked for a long time for that expression, the righteousness of God, and it stood in the way. It was commonly explained by saying that the righteousness of God is the power of God by which God himself is formally righteous and condemns sinners. In other words, God's righteousness is the law. It's what God requires of us, and it's what we fail to do, and therefore it is what condemns us. This is the way all the teachers, except Augustine, which he discovered later, had interpreted this passage, that the righteousness of God, that is the wrath of God. But every time I read this passage, I always wished that God had never revealed the gospel. For who could love a God who is angry, judges, and condemns? So, in other words, so here's, here's the idea. Let's try to draw a picture again. This will be another little frustrating exercise, and that'll be good for me. So, uh, so that you have uh, the Ten Commandments given by Moses, and that's for everybody. Uh, so that's there. And so that establishes a certain kind of righteousness. Let's say righteousness one. But then you have the gospel uh, that reveals another kind of righteousness, uh, a more intense righteousness, R2. And so the, the Ten Commandments would say things like don't murder. Uh, mm, don't murder but the righteousness of the gospel says sell all your possessions and become a monk or the righteousness of the ten commandments says don't commit adultery but the righteousness of the gospel says don't get married commit to chastity and singleness or the righteousness of the ten commandments says do you not shall steal, 
the righteousness of the gospel says, sell your possessions. So that the gospel was understood as an intensification of the law. See? And that that is, and, and Luther says, well, this was, this was already enough. I couldn't do that. And now the gospel comes along. He says, I wish the gospel had never been revealed. It's hard enough just to have the Ten Commandments. You get it? So that the gospel was understood as bad news. I don't wish God had never revealed the gospel, for who could love a God who is angry, judges, and condemns? Until finally, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, I weighed more carefully the passage in Habakkuk where I read, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, and that's quoted in Romans 1. So that this righteousness doesn't come from doing or keeping or observing, but rather from believing. From this, I concluded that life, live, that life must come from faith. In this way, I related the abstract to the concrete, and all Holy Scripture and heaven itself were open to me. <laughs> At this time, however, we see that a great light very clearly, and we may enjoy it richly. So this is so now this this gospel truth has been spread abroad. So, and here's the and here's how this works, right? Remember that faith is what believes a promise, works is what keeps a command. And so if this righteousness is a righteousness that's given by faith, then this righteousness must be that of a promise and a gift, not of a command and a requirement. So we have this gospel. We, but, but we despise and disdain this jewel and heavenly treasure. Accordingly, if one day it should be taken away again, we shall cry and knock once more, as Christ says about the foolish virgins in the parable. We shall cry and knock in vain. Therefore, let us fear God and be grateful. Above all, however, my own example and the example of others should move you. We lived in death and hell and did not have the blessing so abundantly as you have it. Remember Luther's lecturing to seminarians there in Wittenberg. And he says, we went through all this, well, death and hell to, to understand this gospel. So don't miss it. Don't despise it. Occupy yourselves diligently with the doctrine of the blessing. And think about it in order that you may be able to keep yourselves and also do, to make it known to others. As for ourselves, we've done our duty. So don't, don't let this pass. Okay, that's probably a really good spot to stop for today. So let me uh, just put this here, and then we will lock down. Uh, we uh, will stop the recording, and then we will uh, get. Uh, we'll see what questions you guys have. So let's uh, let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks that uh, that through your great kindness you've made known to us the love of Christ and His righteousness, which we have by the promise by faith. Give us this comfort, this light and peace, and give it to all the world that we would rejoice in together in your kindness. For we ask all these things through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.